what a chapter um, in, this, in this journey of David. Um, it seems kind of almost like an incidental little story. For me, as I've looked through it and, and seen some of the text that's in there, it feels to me as though it's one of the most incredible turning point moments in the life of David. Um, it doesn't look like it, but maybe as we work through it, we might see how incredibly significant it is. And how important it is in our dilemma. And I think the dilemma is this. Let's just remember where David is. He's running away from Saul. His context is his life of faith in the reality of his day-to-day experience. That's what he's grappling with. And I think that that is for all of us where we are. Our life of faith, if you have faith in in Jesus, our life of faith grappling, working out, being part of our day-to-day experience. If the Christian faith is something that you're looking at, observing, thinking about, uh, maybe even rejecting. It might be that you're rejecting it because you see it as something which is kind of symbolic and filled with just basic patterns of life. And, and then you get on, you know, you do the things on a Sunday, you observe these traditions, and then you get on with, with real life and you forget about it. I think this little bit of David's narrative in, the, in, it, in this story in his journey with Saul just points to the fact that faith is a million miles away from that. Faith is actually lived out day to day. And it's messy, and it's complex, and it's filled with questions. And some we get right, some we get wrong. But it is faith that is informing that journey. That's what I want us to think about this afternoon. In 1996... I gave up on computer games. It was because my son, who at that point was very young, was battering me every single time on Mario Kart. And it had just reached that point where I thought, the, the most basic of computer games, I haven't got a hope, I'm getting trounced every single time. There's bananas flying all over the place. I haven't got a clue what I'm doing. But it did kind of create a turning point in my life. I don't, just don't do computer games. But I know a whole load of you do. What I do know is that one of the, one of the things that, that really sets apart some games is this idea of strategy and mission. And connecting certain things and doing certain things and the necessity actually to do certain things before you can move on to the next thing. That is this chapter. And there are three missions that David has to achieve. It's almost as though, and I think this is true, kind of computer games, they kind of, they condense all of the complexities of difficult missions, and they make it a little game on the screen. 
The reality is there are things that we have to do. And David, right at this moment, is in life peril. And there are things that he absolutely has to do. Let's remind ourselves of the context. Who is David? He's escaped from Saul. But who is he? He's the son-in-law of the king. He's the commander of the royal bodyguard. And he's realized over a period of time, confirmed by the son, the birth son of the king, his, his close, dear, precious friend, Jonathan, has confirmed to him that Saul, Jonathan's father, Saul, David's father-in-law, is determined to kill him. That's who he is. And so he escapes, and that's what we looked at last week. Verse, uh, chapter 18 and verse 28 and 29 says this, which really, really kind of focuses in in this crisis. When, when Saul realized, what's the foundation of the hatred? It's this, when Saul realized that the Lord was with David, and that his daughter Michael loved David, Saul became still more afraid of him. And he remained his enemy for the rest of his days. That little verse, those two verses there, just shines a light on the problem and the heart of Saul. Yes, it's all directed at David, but the reality is, is that he's angry because the Lord is with David and is not with him. That's the real problem for Saul. He's, this, he's in this role as, as king, appointed as the king of God's people. But what he's realized is, in spite of his position, in spite of his position, the Lord is with David. According to Saul, with this job title, the Lord should be with me. That's an outrage that the Lord is not with me. When power cannot see a greater purpose, power becomes angry and attacks. And that was the problem for Saul. He looked at David, he saw God was with him, he saw his daughter loved him, and he hated him for the rest of his days. That's one side of who David is. But there's another side of David, as we know. He's a shepherd. He's the youngest son of the family of Jesse. And he's been anointed by the priest to shepherd God's people. And that's the challenge for David. That's the issue for David. David didn't really seek. He didn't really kind of connive his way into the court of Saul. He found his way into the court of Saul when he slayed the giant Goliath. He found his place there. And he's got this challenge going on in his mind all the time, I suspect. Saul is the king. I'm called to be his bodyguard. And at the same time, I am anointed 
by God to be the shepherd of his people. I'm anointed to be king. What, what a dilemma. For a person who sought power, ask Julius Caesar, for a person who sought power, being the king's bodyguard is the best place to achieve power. Beware the Ides of March as the knives slip in from behind. David had every opportunity to seize power, knowing he'd been appointed and anointed as king, and yet at the same time, he recognized that that was not his place to take that. That was the context of David. He's living this complex, confused, challenged life that has now resulted in Saul trying to pin him against the wall with a spear. And he runs. He flees alone. Then we come to this little section. Two to six. Fascinating little story. What does he do? He, he, he runs. He finds himself uh, with Himelech the priest. Himelech is trembling when he meets him. Are you alone? Are you, is, is Saul with you? What, what's going on? What's happening? I know who you are. This is incredible. You're here. What's going on? This sounds terrifying. He's trembling. He's fearful. David says this, look, the, the reality is I'm on a secret mission. I'm on a mission for the king. My men haven't eaten. We're hungry. But this secret mission demands that, you know, basically because of the mission that we're on, give us some food. I haven't got any food. The only food I've got is the food that has been consecrated and given as a sacrifice before God, which is only for the priests. There's an amazing little verse where David says to the king, In verse, in verse 5, indeed women, so one of the things that is consecrating about the priests is, is their determined focus on their ministry. And one of the things that is a requirement of the priesthood to be able to eat that bread is that they are separated completely from any human distraction. And so they left their wives while they were serving as priests for a period of time. They separated themselves away. I think that can easily be interpreted as though um, they, the reason they couldn't eat the priest eat, 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 eat the priests that would not be a good thing. The reason they couldn't eat the bread is because the priests had been with the wives who were unclean. That's not what it's about. Let me just clarify that. It's not about that. It's about the separation for the priests at a point in time to separate themselves from any distraction. You know, if you, if you ask the England football manager, he knows exactly what this means. Separate yourself, be focused on your calling right now. David says, my, my men haven't been with their wives haven't been with women, we're, we're on a mission, we're, we're, we're com totally committed. This is, the, do you know what, I, we're going to come back to this little section in a few minutes, but it's fascinating. Here's David. Has he got men? No, actually he gets the men in the next chapter. He's by himself. 
Is he on a mission from the king? Well, he's on a mission from the king, but he's not on a mission from the king. In other words, David, right at that moment, that critical moment in time, is challenged with a decision, and he makes a decision to create a narrative that, that achieves goal one of the mission, get food. You know that little thing that you kind of walk over to, a ping, load of food ends up in your basket on the computer game? Mission one, get food achieved. But it really challenges, doesn't it? It really challenges. Because there is a whole mass of deception here. There is deception. I've read a number of commentaries on this. And for some, the grammatical gymnastics that they do to try to persuade us that David doesn't create a deceptive narrative, doesn't convince me. You might be convinced by that, that's fine. I am not convinced. I am convinced that David, right at this moment in time, in the heat of battle, in the challenge that he faces, creates a deceptive narrative. He's right in the middle of a mess. His life is threatened. And so his human response in the crisis is intermingled with the spiritual goals of his mission. Do you feel like that sometimes? Do you feel like just confused that don't know what to do? How do we answer that? This bit we're going to come back to because I think it's, it's critical in the story. And in fact, it's the only bit of the story that Jesus refers to. Later on, we're going to come back to it. So mission one, stage one, get food achieved. Mission two, stage two, find a weapon. That's what you've got to do. He's, he's run away with nothing. Last week, we left him with Jonathan's arrow fetcher, young boy, Without realizing it, passing a message to David to say the king's going to kill you, run. And, and he, doesn't, he doesn't do anything, he just runs. He's gone, he's out of there, he's got nothing. Stage two, get a weapon. Have you got a sword? Have you got any weapon? Don't you have a spear or a sword here, he says in verse eight? I haven't brought my sword or any other weapon because the king's mission was urgent. <laughs> this, is, this is fascinating. This is fascinating. I'm on an incredibly urgent mission from the king. I haven't even had a chance to get a weapon. The, 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 the deception is getting a bit thin here, to be honest, David. It's getting a bit thin. It was such an urgent message from the king, such an urgent mission, that I didn't even have a chance to get some... get a weapon? Well, okay. The priest replied, The sword of Goliath, the Philistine whom you killed in the valley of Elah, is here. It's wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you want it, take it. There's no sword here but that one. David said, 
There is none like it. Give it to me. If you want a dramatic moment in the story, it is that moment. Seems nothing, does it? For me, it was one of the dramatic moments in the narrative of Saul, David, Samuel, and the mission of God. The giving and taking and receiving and honoring of a sword is always one of the most dramatic moments. It's one of those moments that in, in literature, in, in historic ancient literature, right up to today, is a critical moment. The, the sword carries a symbol of power to the bearer. King Arthur. Do you remember, if you, you might have watched it on Disney, Sword in the Stone, if you're lowbrow. You might have read the book properly if you're really highbrow. But what we do know is that the only one who could take the sword was Arthur from the stone. Perseus kills Medusa with Harpe, the sword that Zeus had passed to his son. Once again, Tolkien got this. Elrond gives Aragon, Anduril, a dramatic moment in the scene. The blade is reforged. The power of the past is given to the present. And the sword is given to Aragorn. But look at what happens here. Just think about what happens here. The sword that has killed Goliath, that has been lain down, because the enemy is defeated, it's not needed anymore. The enemy has been defeated. The sword is no longer needed. David says this, there is none like it. Give it to me. Because that sword carries the symbolic power of this. There is an enemy of God's people and God's mission. And in the past, I have been given the task to take up that sword and to slay the enemy. I, I wish I could create some sort of kind of, I don't know, Steven Spielberg dramatic moment and shine the lights on this as David takes the sword because this is the message. We are in that place again. There is an enemy of the mission of the king, Yahweh, the God of, his, of the people. And I will take up the sword again against the enemy of God's people who is no longer an outside Philistine. He's the inside Saul. Wow. There's the mission. There's the mission of the king. You see, at that moment, I think there is a colliding and there is a, a, there is a recognition for David in that moment. Yes, I am married to Michael, the daughter of the king. But the commander of the bodyguard that I was, I am no longer. I am once again the anointed, anointed shepherd who is called to take up arms to once again 
defend the people of Yahweh from the enemy. And the enemy outside is now the enemy within. If you want to see the pattern of God, if you want to see how God works in this world, it's there. It's with messed up people who don't quite know how to respond because they're hungry. And so they create a narrative which is filled with deceit against the priest of God. He doesn't know whether he can tell this priest the truth. He should be able to tell the priest the truth. That's the point. He should be able to say to the priest, you know that Saul is actually the enemy. Give me the food that I need because I'm taking up arms against the enemy of God's people. But he doesn't know, so he creates a narrative. Like Rahab who saves the spies. Who deceives those who are trying to take the lives of the spies. Again and again we see this complex intermingling of the the reality of our human experience and the challenges that we find in our day-to-day faith life. So mission two, get weapon. Mission three, find an escape route. That's what we see in the next little section. I've called it a moment of madness. David flees to Achish, king of Gath. Look at the, just the irony of that. <laughs> David flees the priest of God to a Philistine king. That, do you remember Goliath was Goliath of Gath? Do you see the picture that's being painted here? David is taking the sword of Goliath of Gath that he killed Gath with back into The Philistine people. He's taken the sword back to Achish, king of Gath. And Achish recognizes him. Realizes who he is. Isn't this the one who they sing about? Saul's killed his thousands. David killed his tens of thousands. David hears this. And in order to escape, he He feigns madness. David took these words to heart and was very much afraid in verse 12. So he pretended to be insane in their presence. And while he was in their hands, he acted like a madman, making marks on the doors of the gate and letting saliva run down his beard. He looked mad. He acted mad. Deceit number two. It's played out again, isn't it? Most famously in Hamlet. If you want a fascinating rabbit warren to dive into for about seven and a half hours, go online and read all of the convoluted and complex arguments about whether Hamlet was actually mad or not. It's fascinating. All sorts of complex arguments from literary scholars to psychiatrists and all the rest of it, trying to work out whether a figure from literature was mad. It's madness. And yet, at the same time, we see David here feigning madness to escape. Mission completed. Find the escape route. Pretend to be mad. There is actually a fascinating little sub-story to this. 
which is the, the historical millennia journey of what and how madness is interpreted. I ended up, I did go down that rabbit warren for about 18 months. It's fascinating. One of the things that madness might have been interpreted as at this particular point in time, very specifically, was otherworldliness and the hand of the divine on those who appear to be mad. And Akish's response is getting out of my sight. Escape, root, found. Here's another one. Here's a fascinating little insight. If you want to see the way the story is unfolding. David pursues madness and pursues God's purpose. Sorry, David feigns madness and pursues God's purpose. Saul abandons God's purpose and pursues madness. I think that's why this story plays out the way it does. In the pursuit of God's purpose, David is willing to make himself look ridiculous to escape. And Saul's decision is to pursue his own glory. He looks ridiculous. Here's the dilemma of truth. Lies and mission success. What do we do with this challenge, this, this mix-up, this complex deception? How do we respond to it? Fascinating articles online. Spouting out great ideas about how David was wrong to have told lies and all, it's simple and it's straightforward. It reminded me of when I was in, when I was many, many years ago working in a, in a manufacturing company. They had these little gauges, they were called go, no go gauges. And, and we used to work out whether the bores of tubes were the right dimension and we did it with a no go gauge. If, if the tube allowed the gauge to go in on one side, it was wide enough, that's great. If the other end of the gauge we tried to put in and he couldn't get it in, it meant that the tube was the right tolerance. It was a go-no-go -no -go gauge. If both ends of the tube went in, the tube was too big. If neither end of the tube went in, the tube was too small. We love to think about faithfulness in that way. We love to think that there's nice, easy, straight lines, go-no-go -no -go gauges. Things that we do do, things that we don't do. Corrie ten Boom, Dutch watchmaker, a champion in the Second World War, secured the lives of so many Jews who were threatened by the Nazis. How did she do it? Deception. <laughs> she wrong. <laughs> Actually, read. Somebody saying she was. I, here's the thing. We, are all, we all find ourselves in moments. What do we do in that moment? Do we look at the 
calling of God as our, as our mission. And we say, give me a no-go, go, no-go gauge. Tell me what's right, tell me what's wrong. Do we do something deeper? Jesus was confronted by just that kind of attitude. In Mark chapter 2, one Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields. And as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some of heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? You see, what the Pharisees had in mind was that their faith was a list of go-no-go gauges. Really straightforward. Things you do do, things you don't do. If I do all of those things, right and wrong, then I'm going to do right before God and He's got to accept me because I've kept all of the gauges right. My needle didn't drop too low, it didn't go too high, it was spot on. Now, Jesus, look at your disciples, they're picking grain. It is really clear, it is really clear from the law that you're not to work on the Sabbath. Really clear. Look at your outrageous, sinful disciples who are picking grain as they walk through the field. Just picture it. Walking through a field. We used to have a field behind our house, path down the middle. You could walk, you could walk through, the, through the field if they were growing wheat. Stood no chance if they were growing rape. It kind of overflowed the, the, the path. But you could just walk along and you could pluck ears and you could give it a rub and there's the grain in the hands. That's exactly what they were doing as they were walking along. Here's Jesus' answer. Have you read what David did when his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abitar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for the priests. Look at verse 27. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Here's what Jesus hones in. He says, how do you interpret what is right and what is wrong? Because your interpretation is that the Sabbath was made for man. Sorry. Man was made for the Sabbath. You're interpreting it and saying, here's the Sabbath. It, it was made as your go-no-go no go gauge. It was made so that you could prove whether you were acceptable, whether you were right. And you've completely misrepresented the whole mission of God's people. The whole purpose of God was not to decide whether you were doing the right thing, the wrong thing. The whole purpose of God was to give you grace and mercy and goodness and privilege. And you twist it. And so David, what was his mission? To be the shepherd of God's people against the enemy. Disciples walking along in the field You've got it wrong if you think they're wrong for plucking a few grains. It wasn't made so that they could serve the Sabbath. It was the Sabbath was made so it could serve them. So that it could give them rest and satisfaction and peace 
and joy and reflection on me. See, that's the thing. It's what the motive is. Because there's another moment in the story of salvation when Jesus could have saved himself. Not with deception, actually. But he makes it clear to Peter by calling down a host of angels that could have freed him and liberated him there and then. When David sought his safety, he had in mind the greater purpose of the mission of God's people. And the same was with Jesus. Same with Corrie ten Boom. The mission was not her own safety. The mission was those she was seeking to save. Same with Jesus. At the moment where he could have saved himself, he did the opposite. It really is kind of brought home to me in Matthew 27. He was accused by the chief priests and the elders and he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, don't you hear the testimony they are bringing against you? Jesus made no reply. Not even a single charge to the great amazement of the governor. At the moment where he could have saved himself, he sacrificed himself. What for? The mission. And if there's one thing that we can take away from that in our complex journey of how to live our lives in mess, it's that. Is our heart daily, truly seeking the mission? Or is it straying into Saul's mission of ourself? Martin Luther had this in mind. He said this. As we try to work out, I'll close with this. He said this. If you try to work out, do this, do that, he says this, be a sinner. You're going to get it wrong, is what he's saying. Be a sinner. And let your sins be strong. Or maybe a slightly different translation of the German famous statement, or he says, or sin boldly. But... Let your trust in Christ be stronger. And rejoice in Christ, who is the victor over sin, death, and the world. You see, that's the attitude, that's the heart space when we're fixed with complexity. When we realize, as David does later on, that maybe what he did was wrong. Have a look at that maybe in a week or so. But at least what we see is this. As Martin Luther says, go through your life first with the mission of the pursuit of Jesus as your King and Savior. And when you get it wrong, trust in that. Gospel in a mess. As we see David escaping from Saul.